0: Hi, Mike here. There's no strong language in this episode, but there are some earthquake rumbling and collapse sounds, which might not be for everyone.
1: Where the South Pacific washes the New Zealand coast, the province of Canterbury begins. It was shore and plain and mountains that the English settlers saw when they came to found this New Zealand province just 100 years ago.
0: You're hearing Christchurch as New Zealand's National Film Unit saw it in 1950, part of the creation myth of the British Empire and the South Seas. And if New Zealand was the Britain of the South Pacific, Canterbury was its England.
1: The Church of England founded the Canterbury Settlement and made Christchurch the cathedral city. It was not haphazard adventure, but planned colonisation. And carefully picked from all ranks of English life, these were the model settlers for the model colony.
2: They aim to recreate British society, minus the top, the lords, and the bottom, the crims.
1: So to a country that was raw and rough, they tried to bring the orderliness of their homeland. What they started, their descendants cherish. And today, the city of Christchurch...
0: Christchurch in the 20th century was essentially a modern version of that blissful colonial ideal. The film you just heard is called Canterbury is 100. It was shot in 1950, but parts of the cityscape look familiar. There's Christchurch Cathedral, of course, and the city centre, looking a lot better than it does now. There's the neo-Gothic buildings of Christ College School and the trams that back then carried commuters but are now just for tourists.
2: Post-war New Zealand was sort of frozen in amber for a few decades. It wasn't until the 1970s, and really the 1980s, that we embraced modernity and also started to question some of the attitudes connected to our colonial past. Think the environmental and anti-war movements, Second wave feminism, the Springbok tour protests, neoliberalism, deregulation.
0: It was about this time that New Zealand got its own film industry.
3: We're taking that card in for cargo, boy.
2: Its own TV industry. OK, $13, the money on the bag.
0: And through our swaggering anti-nuclear Prime Minister, David Longy, a bit of an international profile. Would
1: like an answer, sir. And I'm going to give it to you if you hold your breath. Just for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> I can smell the uranium on it as you lean towards the... <laughs>
0: It was kind of a new dawn in New Zealand, and with a new modern society came a lot of new modern buildings. The government's old Ministry of Works, renowned for over-engineering and over-building everything, was on the way out. Private enterprise was the order of the day.
2: It was about this time that a developer named Prime West Corporation was eyeing up a piece of land on the corner of Cashel and Madras streets in central Christchurch. The site was a couple of blocks to the east of Cathedral Square, the heart of the city and home to Christchurch Cathedral.
4: The target in the 80s was to build as quickly as possible and get that rent revenue coming in the door.
2: This is Russell Poole. He's been a structural engineer since the 1960s and he's worked on hundreds of buildings all around the world, but mostly in Christchurch. He was an early partner of one of the big local engineering firms Holmes Consulting Group. Paul saw the staid 1960s and 70s give way to the freewheeling 80s. Yeah,
4: it was speed. Everything was
0: speed. Yes, it was a very expansionary and boom time. Prime West Corporation's development on the corner of Cashel and Madras streets fitted this mould perfectly. An unremarkable office building built quickly and cheaply. The developers weren't skimping exactly, but their aim was to make money, so they weren't going to spend anything they didn't need to. It's one of those buildings that's really quite forgettable. This is Michael Brooks. Back in the 80s, he was the managing director for Williams Construction, company that built the CTV building for Prime West. He remembers it as the unlovely office block that it was. I would have driven past it over the years and not taken a blind little of notice of it, you know, because it just... Disappears into the blandness of the rest of the buildings that were in Madras Street at the time. Michael Brooks and Williams Construction entered the CTV story in 1986 when they won the contract for the development. Williams was a construction company, but Brooks made one decisive contribution to the building's design. The reason why that lift shaft is on the outside like that is because there was space on the site to do it. Brooks came up with the idea of putting the lift shaft on the outside of the building, at the northern end of the site, close to Latimer Square. Once you know this about the design, it does kind of jump out in photos. The building looks like a stack of cantilevers, the floors all attached to the skinny tower at one end.
2: The skinny tower, the lift shaft, we've talked about before. It was the only part of the building that didn't fall down in the earthquake. Throughout the rescue effort, it stood there like a beacon swaying with every aftershock. Rescue was worried it would collapse on top of people working on the rubble. Later, the fire that consumed much of the site ripped through the tower as well, leaving it a blackened husk. Even then, it still didn't fall down.
0: The reason the lift shaft stayed standing was because it was the strongest part of the building. And being the strongest part, it was supposed to help hold up everything else this episode, we're going to look at why that didn't happen, and try to answer some of the key questions behind this disaster. Why was an engineer with no experience on multi-storey buildings allowed to design CTV?
2: Why was another engineer's concerns about that design ignored? And why,
0: through more than 20 years and at least six more opportunities to fix the problem, did no one do anything about it?
2: I'm Michael Wright. And I'm Margaret Gordon. On February 22nd, 2011, a devastating earthquake shook the city of Christchurch, killing 185 people. Two-thirds of those people were in one building, a building that should never have been built. From stuff, this is collapse.
1: Those buildings, they'll fall down when there's an earthquake.
4: My conscience is clear that we did the best we could on the day.
3: Graham went on and on about the CDV building. It was not a question of if, but when.
2: There's an inside joke among engineers that the strongest building you could possibly design would be a brick. A concrete fortress with no windows, doors, balconies or anything else that might make it something that people would ever want to live or work in. Of course, you can't actually design a building that way, but that's not the point of the joke. The point is that every time you add a doorway or a window, every time you make an allowance for accessibility or aesthetics, you're conceding strength. Technically, you're weakening the building.
0: The structural engineer has to work within those constraints. Design a building that has the requisite strength, but also everything else that a building needs and what the client wants. Doors, windows, stairs, a swimming pool on the roof, whatever. You heard Michael Brooks, the Williams construction boss, talk about how CTV was a forgettable building. It didn't have any added extras. Just a basic six-storey office block.
2: You also heard him talk about putting the lift shaft, the strongest part of the building, at one end, outside the building footprint. He said this was the most efficient way of fitting everything in that the client wanted.
0: This design made the CTV building a little bit different. If you work in an office building, if you're sitting in one right now, think about where the lifts are, where the stairwells are. They're probably in the middle of the floor somewhere, or maybe incorporated along an edge, not poking out one side. Where those lifts and stairs are, that's almost certainly the structural core of that building, the strongest part. If there's an earthquake, the floors will transfer the energy of that shaking to that structural core. The core and its foundations are going to absorb that force because they're built to withstand it, and the building's not going to fall over.
2: CTV had its structural core projecting out one end of the building. Now, it's important to say there's nothing wrong with designing a building this way. It's a totally acceptable method, and the same engineering principle Mike just mentioned applies. But if you do go this way, you need to approach things a bit differently than with a more conventional building. The engineer who's designing it needs to know what they're doing.
0: So it's early 1986. Christchurch is in the middle of a building boom. Nightclubs and cafes are emerging on the scene, and the city's love affair with shopping malls is just getting started. Williams Construction has just won the contract from Prime West Corporation to design and build a new office building on the corner of Cashel and Madras streets. One of its first jobs was to hire a structural engineer to design the building. And they chose one of the biggest names in the business. Here's Michael Brooks again.
4: Well, Alan Ray's one of the top engineers in the country.
0: Alan Ray. Remember that name. You're going to hear a lot more about him. In the 1980s, Alan Ray was one of the most prominent engineers in Christchurch, arguably in New Zealand. And it is recognised that they're at the top of the game.
2: Ray made his name designing tilt-slab buildings. Those are the buildings where they make each wall by pouring a slab of concrete flat on the ground, then use a crane to tilt each slab up to the vertical, kind of like a gingerbread house. You still see a lot of them being built today. His self-named company, Alan Ray Consulting Engineer, had already worked with Williams Construction on an earlier project.
0: Now, the design that Brooks had suggested putting the lift shaft outside the building came with an added benefit. It opened up more floor space, which increased the rent the owners could charge. That might sound a bit mercenary, but it's how a lot of property development works. Build something economically and maximise the profit. And Alan Ray was very good at that.
4: Alan Ray designed to meet the standard. And he did that very well.
2: Russell Simpson was a building inspector with the Christchurch City Council for years. He inspected a lot of other buildings designed by Alan Ray's firm. Simpson agrees that if you wanted a building designed up to standard for minimum cost, Ray was your man.
4: Why do big developers use Ellen Ray? Because less concrete, less steel, fit for purpose.
2: Today in New Zealand, there's a Building Act written into law. It exists to keep buildings safe and fit for purpose and to ensure their resilience to things like earthquakes. Back in the 80s, things were a bit different. There were building standards, but they are enforced by local councils and monitored by people like Russell Simpson.
4: The New Zealand standard drew a line in the sand. This is the thing. And if you came up to 49%, you were short of the line, fail. If you were 50.1%, you passed. Alan Ray designed his buildings to be 50.0000001%.
2: Just to clarify, this is a metaphor. There is and always has been a strength standard that engineers have to meet 100% of when designing a building. What Russell Simpson is saying is that just like an exam where 50.001% means you just pass, Alan Ray designed his buildings to meet the strength standard and no more. Simpson is adamant Ray was very good at hitting this target. You could probably hear him banging the table as he spoke just then but this approach comes with some pitfalls. The biggest one being, there is no margin for error.
4: When we did our inspections, we were given detailed instructions for Alan Ray's design to work. A lot of the detail was very critical. So it had to be done absolutely perfectly to be 50.001. Otherwise it was 47
0: or 48. We should reiterate here, Alan Ray wasn't some cowboy operator for working like this. If a client engages you to design a building for minimum cost, that's what you do. You don't add any extra steel or concrete that's going to cost any more money. You design it up to the building standards and no further. And Ray, Simpson says, was always sure when he had gone just far enough. Alan Ray, I like the guy. But having said that, he was a bit pushy
4: sometimes. He was on a mission. Don't get him a bloody way. But he was pushy because he'd done the work and he knew that he was 50.0001. He was over the line. Just. I mean, he could have designed a building with belt and braces and it'd cost you 15 to 20% more. And that wasn't what the developer wanted. He was out to make a quid. He wasn't getting any more rent because it had a few more reinforcing bars in it.
2: Alan Ray was clearly very good at what he did but he didn't have a lot of experience with multi-storey buildings. He'd worked on a couple, and only one of those was similar to what CTV would be. The CTV design would be done by one of his structural engineers, David Harding. Ray had recently hired Harding for exactly this type of work.
0: This was the moment the CTV disaster was really set in train, because David Harding had never designed a multi-storey building before. His structural engineering experience was mostly on single and two-storey buildings. According to Harding, a big reason he took the job with Ray was because it was going to be a chance to learn about multi-storey design under Ray's supervision. It was on this basis that he took on the CTV job. He thought Ray was actively overseeing his work. Here's Harding talking in 2012 during an inquiry into the building's collapse.
1: When I saw him coming to me, asking me questions... To me, that was confirmation that he was doing reviews of the job. I was just reassured that he was reviewing it and that I wasn't doing it by myself. If I had thought I was doing it by myself, I would have bailed out right then.
0: Alan Ray took a very different view. At the same inquiry, he said he thought David Harding was up to the job. If Harding wasn't up to it, he expected his employee to say so. This is Ray at the same inquiry.
4: Mr Harding's role was a senior role and in that role it was his responsibility to initiate with me any concerns that he has. It was not my role to go and supervise him as I would a
0: graduate. It was an almost perfect communication breakdown. Ray thought Harding knew what he was doing. Harding thought Ray was reviewing his work. So neither of them said anything
2: records show David Harding started work on the CTV design in March 1986. He'd logged more than 300 hours on the project by the end of that year. Over that time, he made a number of mistakes. For example, because the building was more than four stories high, Harding needed to use a computer program that would analyse how his design would perform in an earthquake. Harding had never used this program before, so Ray gave him some calculations that a former employee had done on a similar building, one with the lift shaft at one end. Harding followed these notes exactly. He didn't realise that because this other engineer knew what they were doing, they hadn't included every last detail in their notes.
0: One crucial calculation Harding missed had to do with how much the southern corners of the building would move in an earthquake. The southern corners were important because they were the furthest from the lift shaft, so in an earthquake they would move and twist more than the rest of the building, a bit like how a windmill blade travels faster at the tip than near the centre. Harding didn't allow for that difference, so the computer program told him the building would perform better in an earthquake than it actually would.
2: Harding toiled away for about five months, confident that his boss was keeping an eye on his work. Then in August 1986, his drawings were submitted to the Christchurch City Council as part of the building permit application.
0: The person who would be assessing the design was an engineer named Graham Tapper. And it's worth pausing for a minute to introduce you to him because he's a decisive character in this story. Tapper died in 2004, so he never got the chance to explain himself after the collapse. If he had, we might have a much better understanding of what happened. Council Building Inspector Russell Simpson worked alongside Tapper in the early 90s.
4: He was a dot the I's cross the T's sort of a guy. Could be a grumpy old prick, but but I actually quite liked him as a person.
0: Graham Tapper didn't suffer fools, and he was never afraid to speak his mind. Twice in his career, he'd either left or lost his job after a dispute with someone.
2: You can probably see where this is going. David Harding's substandard design for the CTV building was about to be reviewed by the bullheaded, never backward and coming forward council engineer, Graham
3: Tapper. Graham was a person who never talked about his work at home. The one exception was the CTV building. This is Pat Tapper, Graham Tapper's
2: widow. She's reading from a statement here at a commission of inquiry in 2012.
3: Graham went on and on about the CTV building. At first I thought this was related to Alan Ray, where there was a personality clash. However, I soon realised that what Graham was unhappy about was the building itself. His view was there were earthquake risks. It was not a question of if, but when. And when it happened, he was concerned the CTV building would not prove to be strong enough.
2: Graham Tapper acted on his concerns immediately. The day after David Harding's design was submitted to council, Tapper wrote a letter by hand asking for the calculations to back up the design and listing 14 different problems with what had been provided so far. Some of his concerns were minor, some were major. When you read this letter now, knowing what happened to the CTV building, one line jumps off the page. Here's our producer, Mark Greenhill, reading that line.
5: Floor connection to shear wall system and general
0: connection between floor slab and walls. Okay, a couple of new ideas in there. Mark's joined us here because he's covered the CTV story extensively, and he's going to help us break this down.
5: Once more, Mark. Floor connection to shear wall system and general connection between floor slab and walls. Main new thing is a shear wall system. What's that? So firstly, shear is S-H-E-A-R, not shear as in shear cliff face. Shear force is basically two forces acting in opposite directions. Say if you're in a car without a seatbelt on, and the driver hits the brakes, you're going to slide forwards, not backwards. That's shear force in action. Now when it comes to buildings, the process is a bit more complicated, but it's essentially the same. A shear wall acts like a buttress, keeping a building up in something like an earthquake. So this is what
0: I talked about earlier with the lift shaft, yeah?
5: Right. So not all buildings are designed this way, with a shear wall system. But plenty are. Including CTV. The way it works is... In an earthquake, the floors of a building shake, and the force of that shaking gets transferred from the floors to the shear walls. So the connection between them is important? Very important. If the connection breaks, the momentum of the shaking floors won't be resisted by anything. That puts huge pressure on the other vertical elements, such as the columns, which probably haven't been designed to withstand those forces.
0: And why is Tapper calling it a shear wall system? Because he's
5: talking about the whole process here, not just the main structural wall. It's the floors that shake during an earthquake and transfer the energy of that shaking to the main structural walls. The walls absorb it, the building doesn't fall down, the system works. And just to be clear, the main structural wall is the key to all this? Yes, but the system is only as good as its weakest part.
0: And in this case, the main shear walls were around the lift shaft and the stairs? Yes, they were. Remember,
5: on CTV, the structural core was poking out the northern end of the building rather than sitting within it, which would be typical. As we've said before, this was the only part of the building that was still standing after the collapse. Thank you, Mark. No problem at all.
2: So, on CTV, the shear wall system was its structural core. It was mostly located in the area around the building's lift and stairwells. The core was supposed to keep the building standing during a big earthquake, and remember, it was poking out one end, which meant an engineer had to take special care designing it. Council engineer Graham Tapper, who reviewed the design, wasn't satisfied with how the floors of the CTV building were connected to that structural core.
0: If the CTV building's fate was set in motion with the inexperienced David Harding's design, this was the first and really the best chance to save it. Harding's design had been submitted to the Council for approval, and the Council engineer spotted several problems, including a profound design flaw. This was the time for the wrongs in the CTV building to be righted. That's not what happened. Instead, things got very messy. Remember what Pat Tapper said about her husband and Alan Ray?
3: Graham went on and on about the CTV building. At first I thought this was related to Alan Ray, where there was a personality clash.
0: Alan Ray and Graham Tapper had a history. You can see where this comes from. Tapper was a meticulous curmudgeon who didn't take kindly to Ray's pass-fail approach to the building code. Ray even had a nickname for Tapper, Colonel Tapper. One of Ray's staff at the time said his boss used the phrase around the office so much, one of the firm's clients actually went down to the council office and asked to see Colonel Tapper.
2: Ray would later dismiss the claim that he resented Tapper. He said they disagreed sometimes and often had debates, but that was it. Ray also rejected the idea that he'd go over Graham Tapper's head to the council building unit boss, Brian Bluck. An engineer who had worked for Ray and the Christchurch City Council said council staff were often troubled by some of the structural details on the permit applications from Ray's firm. Graham Tapper was often one of those who wasn't satisfied. Here's that engineer at the 2012 inquiry.
1: I found that Alan Ray and ARCL did not like Graham Tapper's close scrutiny of their work. It was not uncommon for Alan Ray to go directly to Brian Bluck to obtain the release of a building consent when he could not get approval from Graham Tapper.
0: So this engineer was saying that when Ray couldn't get permit sign-off from Graham Tapper, he just went over Tapper's head. And just to make things even more complicated, Bluck, the manager, and Tapper, the employee, had their share of disagreements too. Here's Building Inspector Russell Simpson again, who worked in the same office as both of them.
4: I can recall some. Absolutely, totally unprofessional shouting matches between the two of them in the office. Like two-year-olds.
0: Unbelievable. Appalling. They should have both hung their bloody heads in shame. So, to recap, it's September 1986, about six months since design work on the CTV building started. The permit application had been lodged with the Christchurch City Council. Part of that application was engineer David Harding's building design. Council engineer Graham Tapper found some problems with that design, including the way the floors were to be connected to the main structural walls of the building. This wasn't the first time Tapper had taken issue with a design by Alan Ray's firm, and you've just heard how dysfunctional these things got at the council.
2: No one really knows what happened next. The short version is a permit was granted for the CTV building, subject to conditions, on September 30, 1986. Graham Tapper approved the structural elements of that permit, even though they didn't comply with the building standard. The floor to wall connections still weren't strong enough.
0: And this is the big unknown. Why did a stick in the mud like Graham Tapper suddenly relent and sign off on substandard work? He was a guy who would rather have a screaming match with his boss than back down on a point. A guy who, at least according to some people, was the bane of Alan Ray's life, who refused to give in on exactly these sorts of details.
2: Pat Tapper, Graham's widow, remembered things coming to a head that September. She later told an inquiry she clearly recalled seeing her husband off to work one particular morning.
3: Well, as he was going out the door, he said, oh, well, mightn't have a job when I came home tonight. And I just said, oh, well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. All
1: right. Did you know who the meeting was going to be with or not? Well, I knew
3: it would be Brian Black, and I just surmised it was going to be Alan Ray.
0: The only living person who would have been at that meeting is Alan Ray. He was questioned on this point at the 2012 inquiry at great length, and his answers were always the same. I never went over Graham Tapper's head. I don't recall intervening on the CTV
2: job. The Commission of Inquiry later found that a meeting likely did take place between at least Ray and Bluck. At this meeting, Ray convinced Bluck that any concerns over the design were unfounded. It isn't clear if Graham Tapper was present, but as a result of that meeting, he too was, quote, either persuaded that his concerns were unfounded, or more likely was directed to sign off on the structural design, which he did. Graham Tapper had been loud and clear about his concerns with the CTV building design. The connections between the floors and the wall were not strong enough to withstand a big quake. Despite this, despite everything we know about how stubborn Tapper could be, he gave in. He signed off the plans. The CTV building, with all its floors, would be built.
0: Brian Tapper is a retired scientist living in Palmerston North. He's Graham's younger brother. He thinks his brother didn't really have a choice on CTV. Graham was in his late 50s and he had a history of employment disputes. His health wasn't great and he had little in the way of savings. He couldn't really refuse an order from a superior and he couldn't take his concerns elsewhere for fear of breaching confidentiality. There were hardly any whistleblower protections back then. If he resigned, the permit probably would have gone ahead anyway and Graham would have been left unemployable and open to a defamation lawsuit. So he chose what seemed like the least terrible option at the time. A few years after all this, in the early 1990s, Brian Tapper went to stay with his brother in Christchurch. Graham called his younger brother Pinhead. It was part affection, part insult, just like Graham. Come on, Pinhead, Graham said one day. We're going for a drive.
1: We drove into Central Christchurch along Manchester Street. This is about two blocks from the CTV building. He pointed to some buildings and said to me, those buildings, they'll fall down when there's an earthquake.
0: These were some very old, unreinforced brick buildings that did indeed fall down in the quake.
1: We were then... Coming back, I'm not quite sure whether it was Madras Street or...
0: Madras Street is where the CTV building was.
1: But he he went on to say, while we were driving, to the effect that the Christchurch City Council was issuing permits that were not
0: earthquake-safe. It was something that shocked me. It was only when they got home that Brian realised... They hadn't done anything while they were in town. The whole point of the drive was for Graham to get that off his chest.
2: Construction on the CTV building began not long after the permit was approved. The process was not straightforward. Williams Construction was the subject of a takeover just as the project started. Its parent company was then sold and Williams boss Michael Brooks and a couple of colleagues ended up starting a new company, which finished the CTV build, sometime in late 1987 or early 1988.
0: Then, as you've heard, the building sat empty for a couple of years. Remember, its owner, Prime West, had gone bust, and the receivers had a hard time finding a buyer. Finally, in the early 1990s, something happened. The Canterbury Regional Council was interested in the building.
2: This was the second chance to save the CTV building from itself. Because before the regional council made any offer, just to be clear, this is a different council to the one that issued the permit. Before it made any offer, it got an engineering inspection. Here's that engineer, his name is John Hare, describing what he found. Again, this is from the inquiry in 2012.
1: I identified that there appeared to be an area of non-compliance with the code of the day with respect to the tying of the floors to the shear walls.
2: This was the same problem that Graham Tapper had spotted on the plans back in 1986. The connections between the floors and the shear wall system, which we've discussed, weren't strong enough. In a major earthquake, those floors would fall away.
0: John Hare notified Alan Ray's firm about this immediately. At the 2012 inquiry, Ray said he didn't remember any meeting on this but said he agreed with Hare's conclusion that it was a fundamental error. A straight blunder, he called it.
2: John Hare had only looked at the structural design before raising the alarm. But a later inspection of the building itself flagged the same issue. The regional council got a quote to fix the problems. It came back at $14,000, but by then the council had backed out of buying the building.
0: Then nothing much happened for a whole year. There were no potential buyers, but more importantly, the problem wasn't fixed. Alan Ray's stopgap solution was to just keep an eye on the building every time he drove up Madras Street to check if it was occupied or if it looked like anyone was moving in. Finally, in early 1991, he read in the newspaper that the building had been sold. ANZ Bank would be opening a branch there. Ray knew the problem still needed fixing, so his firm notified the new owners and organised repairs. This involved the installation of drag bars, basically steel reinforcing, to strengthen the connection between the floors and the walls. It took another eight months for this work to be done.
2: When the Commission of Inquiry dug into all this 20 years later, it wouldn't be impressed with how long the whole thing took or the solution. Quote, drag bars were never going to be as effective as an original code-compliant connection.
0: That's two missed opportunities to fix the CTV building. The permit application when Graham Tapper raised concerns and the 1990 inspection that led to the drag bars. It's actually three opportunities if you count that the drag bar retrofit needed a permit but didn't have one. Another permit application would have flagged the problem with the City Council again and maybe led to further action.
2: Chance number four was another maybe. It came in 2001 when a language school was moving into the building and applied for a permit to do a fit-out of one floor. The council wasn't required to check the structural drawings as part of this, but if an engineer had done so, they may well have found the problem.
0: In 2008, another language school called King's Education, yes, that King's Education, moved into the fourth floor of the building. The floor had been an office space, and a school brought a lot more people than an office Technically, that was a change of use, so the owner should have notified the council, which would have checked that the building was compliant with this new use. Another chance, however small, for someone to have checked that the building was fit for purpose. That didn't happen.
2: So, if we're being rigorous, that's five. Five missed opportunities. That's already a lot of chances. But Christchurch was about to give the CTV building one more. Dramatic pictures have been witnessed from Canterbury in the wake of the 7.1 magnitude earthquake.
0: 40 On September the 4th, 2010, a magnitude 7.1 earthquake struck just west of Christchurch.
2: It struck early and it struck
3: with force. The whole building felt as if
2: it was actually going to fall over sideways and it was...
0: Nobody was killed, but thousands of buildings across the city were damaged. Building facades collapsed in the CBD. Entire streets were submerged in water in the eastern suburbs. It was clear that many buildings were damaged beyond repair.
1: I was awestruck by the power of the earthquake and the damage that is caused in the city that I grew up in. The quake has caused widespread damage across the city, so we've got a lot of structural damage to some of
2: our... This was a huge shock to a lot of people. Christchurch was on almost no one's radar as an earthquake risk. The city quickly got used to a lot of new concepts, liquefaction, ground acceleration, the earthquake commission. A lot of the land in the city was assigned a colour to designate damage. Red zone, white zone, orange zone, green zone.
0: A colour coding system applied to buildings as well. With so much damage, engineers and other building experts were dispatched across the city as quickly as possible to conduct rapid assessments. Every building received a placard, red, yellow or green. The top priority was identifying which buildings were too dangerous to occupy. Those were red placards. Yellow meant, it doesn't look good, everyone out until we can confirm if this building is okay or not. Green was, safe for now. More detailed inspections would have to wait.
2: Three days after that big, non-lethal earthquake of September 2010, a group of Christchurch City Council building officers were sent to check three buildings – One of them was the CTV building.
4: Is there anything obviously wrong with this building? And that's all it was. At first glance, does this building seem okay?
0: We've heard from Russell Simpson before. He was one of the three building officers. CTV was the last building the three men inspected that day. When they arrived, there was a green placard on the door, meaning someone had already done the most basic emergency inspection.
2: They decided to have a look around anyway. They couldn't get into every floor, but they saw enough to get a sense of the damage. Remember, they thought they were doing a basic check.
4: There was a crack in the stairs, with stairs joined onto a landing. It was enough that we sort of noted, but it wasn't enough to make us think the building was going to fall down. It wasn't enough to say everybody out now.
0: The three men agreed with the earlier building inspection, green placard and filled out another form to this end. This was important because while Simpson and the others thought they were doing a basic check, the form they used here mistakenly implied they'd done a more detailed one. But they covered their bases by telling the staff member who showed them around, most likely CTV managing director Murray Wood, who would die in February, to do one more thing.
4: We told them we had potentially concerns and that they should get an engineer to look at it.
2: An engineer did just that but it didn't make any difference. We're up to missed opportunity seven now. The engineer, a guy named David Coatesworth, inspected the building a few weeks later. He found cracks and some minor structural damage, but no evidence of structural failure. He recommended some repairs. He also asked to see the structural drawings for the building. But the Christchurch City Council archives had been in disarray since the quake, and it was going to take weeks to track them down. By the time they were retrieved, Coatesworth had already filed his report.
0: Remember how Marion Hilbers, the receptionist at the clinic, hated working in the CTV building? It shook when heavy traffic drove past and made her nervous. She wasn't the only one. Staff at CTV, King's Education and Relationship Services were all uneasy about the cracks in the building that seemed to be getting bigger. At King's Education, the floor was so lopsided, a staff member used blu tack to stop pens rolling off her desk. CTV receptionist Marianne Jackson felt so unsafe, she would run out of the building every time a big aftershock hit. On February 22nd, that would save her life. She was the only CTV employee in the building to survive.
2: Many of these people had felt comforted by the green placard on the door. But this was a bit misleading. Green did not mean everything's fine. It meant, and I'm quoting from the literature here, while no apparent structural or other safety hazards have been found, a more comprehensive inspection of the exterior and interior may reveal safety hazards. Here's Simpson again.
4: We had had only fairly basic briefing because there was an urgent need to get out there and basically a red stick or anything that was obviously bad. We were set out to do an initial, and it was always an initial assessment. To this day, my conscience is absolutely clear that I didn't do anything wrong or negligent.
0: On Boxing Day 2010, an aftershock hit Christchurch. There had been thousands already, but this was a pretty big one, magnitude 4.9, it caused a whole lot more damage to buildings around the city. One of them was a nondescript low-rise office on Gloucester Street in the CBD that housed a medical practice called The Clinic. The building next door to The Clinic was so badly damaged after Boxing Day that both buildings were given a red placard, too dangerous to occupy. As it happened, The Clinic was already planning to move premises. Its new home would be the CTV building. The Boxing Day quake fast-tracked that move.
2: The clinic's director, a guy named John Drew, had already assumed the role of building manager of the CTV building. After Boxing Day, he called David Coatsworth. He was the engineer who inspected the building after September and found no major structural problems. Drew wanted to ask Coatsworth if he could come back and look at the building again and see if there was any new damage. But he got Coatsworth's voicemail. It was the holidays. Drew should have followed up after that, but he didn't. Coatesworth declined an interview for this podcast. The Royal Commission had found that there was likely no significant damage visible when he inspected the CTV building in 2010. Even so, Coatsworth told the Commission how the job weighed on him.
4: It would be fair to say that I have relived the inspection that I did of the CTV building over and over in my mind, wondering whether there was anything I missed or misinterpreted. In the end, I have to fall back on my professional judgment as an engineer. in, in closing my evidence, I'd like to offer my sincere sympathies to the families of the people who died in the CTV building that day.
0: Everything that needed to happen for the CTV disaster to strike was in place. The building was damaged but still standing after a massive earthquake and months of countless aftershocks. It had profound design flaws that had been identified 25 years earlier, but which had then been ignored, then inadequately repaired, then repeatedly missed despite several opportunities to find them. And five days a week from 9am to 5pm, it was full of people from a TV station, a doctor's surgery and a counselling service. By February the 21st, 2011, it would be even fuller. That's when classes would start at King's Education English Language School, bringing another 100 or so students and teachers in every day.
2: On February 22nd, 2011, 80 people from the King's Education School, 18 people at the clinic medical practice One person from Relationship Services counselling and 16 people from Canterbury Television would die when the CTV building collapsed with them inside. Their deaths accounted for two-thirds of the entire earthquake toll.
0: There would be three major investigations into the disaster. You've heard a little from one of them already. That investigation was sprawling and complex, and best summarised as trying to answer the question of what the hell went wrong with this building.
2: The other two focused on the victims and why so many people died. One of those was bitter and acrimonious, and left some of the people whose heroism you've already learned about in this podcast feeling hated and worthless. The other one would become the biggest homicide investigation in New Zealand history. <music> Next time, on Collapse. Who was in charge of CTV site?
1: He ran out of the store and ran towards his car and because we chased him. It is recommended that, one, a charging document be
4: filed detailing an offence of means to
0: Collapse is a Stuff podcast written, produced, and presented by Margaret Gordon and me, Michael Wright. Additional reporting, research, and creative input by Mark Greenhill. Script editing by Adam Dunning. Music by Henry Nichol. Sound mix and design by Chris Sinclair. If you want to know more, head to stuff.co.nz slash collapse, where you'll find links to every episode, as well as photos, graphics, and feature articles. You'll also find links for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and so on. If you're listening on Apple, don't forget to give Collapse a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Today's episode included audio from TVNZ, Archives New Zealand, and the Department of Internal Affairs. Thanks also to The Age and Nine. This podcast was made possible with help from New Zealand On Air.